Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, as Jeremy said, for coming back after lunch. Um, it's never great to be the person who has to present on Friday afternoon. Um, but yes, it I, is. We've got an optimistic view. Well, <laughs> we do, and I, I'm going to use a technique later on that I call subliminal recaffeination. So keep your eyes out for it. Um, and it would be particularly helpful to Jeremy Knox, I think, because you've been a little bit sleep-deprived of late with the young one. Jeremy Singer, um, I suspect less useful for you because your energy levels seem to be set at about 11, so you may need to look away um, at, at that point. Um, there are lots of metaphors here, so I hope you like metaphors. Um, some of them stranger than others. Uh, this image is called the lonely vacuum of space. Uh, I really like this picture. And here today it's going to do three things for me. Um, one is it's going to provide a metaphor. Another is it's going to provide a really great um, pun. <laughs> and thirdly, it's going to provide a sort of caricature of a particular view of the student, which I don't think is a real view for most people, but I just want to use it as a contrast to the view that I want to paint through this presentation of what I think are important aspects of our view of the student as we scale up assessment. And most of this talk isn't really about scaling up, it's about the establishment of this particular kind of view of the student that I really want us to take account of as we scale, before we scale too much and before this kind of view becomes too embedded in our thinking around assessment and is locked in and too difficult to undo. So this is a view of the student as an individual around whom there is plenty of space to scale things up and whom we can clone um, with, you know, relatively unproblematic. It's not too difficult to sort of replicate the idea of the student over and over again by treating him as identical to all of the other students um, and giving him um, identical processes that he needs to go through. Um, this is a view that I think we see represented in declarations of own work, individual assessments, in appraisal and promotion processes, CVs and applications, and so on. And it establishes the idea that the individual is entirely responsible for all of these accomplishments. So if we take my presentation, Clara, unfortunately, is unwell. She's not able to be here. And you could say, well, in that case, she didn't do it, and Tim did it. And I could take full responsibility, blame, uh, possibly credit. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I wouldn't, because that would sort of ignore the something like eight years of conversations that I've had with Clara around the ideas in this talk. Um, the, all the research that we've done together, all the teaching that we've done together, the way that we've developed particular working practices that work for us, might not work for everyone. I don't know too many people who use swearing as a productive feedback device um, on shared papers like Clara and I do. Um, but we, we've, we've developed all these ways of contributing to eventually this lovely mixed up mashed in dough that I'm baking in front of you right now. Um, so here we, here we embark on the second metaphor, which is about cookies. Um, bear with me. So there are other contributors here. Di Hounsell, we've worked with 
um, on some of these research projects. He's had a lot of conversations with us. He's given us some feedback on drafts. He's done some of the teaching on the online um, assessment module, which is now called something else, um, of the Masters in Digital Education and the assessment module of the Masters in Clinical Education. Those conversations have been very fruitful for the stuff that I'm going to talk to you about here. We didn't put him on the presentation because we have to draw a line somewhere. Um, <laughs> all of the students on our courses who we spoke to about these kind of ideas gave us lots of really rich examples of how they might apply or might not apply in their particular diverse set of practices. I've also not listed them on the slides. The material resources that we've drawn on in producing the work that kind of built the foundation for this um, have been important. Perhaps I should be thanking Microsoft for creating PowerPoint so that we can do it. I don't really feel like doing that, so I'm not. And again, they're not listed on the slides. Um, and actually, it's difficult to, to explain all of the various contributions that go into something like this. And even the acknowledgement section on my thesis wasn't as long as the chat that I've just given you about this fairly Monday talk. Um, but what, what I want to say is that in any kind of product or performance, it's socially produced. Loads of different ingredients come together. They combine in ways that make this actually an inseparable mix of different elements. Both in the types of ingredients that are mixed together and the way that they're mixed together. You can no longer separate out just the flour or just the butter or just the sugar from this mix of dough. And that goes for any kind of collaborative activity, whether it's a group project or some sort of peer learning activity, or even the lonely writer locked in a tower doesn't want to talk to anyone writing a paper because they still spoke to other people about their work at some point. They still used material resources that were produced by other people. And they cannot, well, they can, but they, in my view, can't claim full responsibility for their achievements because they have been um, building those on the contributions of others. However, in our kind of my caricature of standardized traditional assessment, what we try to do is we try to fit rigid boundaries and borders around each student, squeeze them through predetermined templates in the shape that we think um, is most appropriate to what we're trying to establish. And we're very proud of our reliable assessments, the removal of the unsightly variability of context and the disconnection of each individual from the other people and stuff that they use to develop themselves. And as we scale up, we can produce a large number of homogeneous, predictable population with guaranteed attributes. And actually, like to be honest, that looks really nice. Um, but the point I'm trying to make is that do we really want all of the cookies to be the same? Do we only want one kind of cookie? And does this cookie here, having gone through exactly the same uniform process as everyone else, tightly structured and bounded, does that cookie now know, or is it likely that that cookie will know how to think outside the box? Will that cookie be able to navigate the complex material and social entanglements and environments that it needs to move through after graduation? And will that cookie really be empowered to reconfigure the established institutions that may no longer be relevant to the goals and evolving needs of our society? 
Will it have been supported to develop a sense of social justice and critical thought about the ethics and norms of the institutions and the policies and the roles that it encounters? I've gone off metaphor. Um, <laughs> so back to, the, uh, back to the other metaphor, the classic metaphor of the stormtrooper with a vacuum. You all know about this metaphor, um, but just in case, I'll talk you through it. Um, so here we have someone who is basically the same as everyone else and is able to operate devoid of context in the lonely vacuum of space. And sometimes I think what assessors want to do in this characterized, caricaturized view of assessment that I want to put forth is they would like to just be able to plug something into the brain of each student and read out the true, unadulterated, pure core ability of that student in a particular domain. So products and performances are too indirect, they get messed up by the fact that a student can have a good or a bad day, and they get messed up by the kind of marker variability that Steve was talking about. Various forms of bias, the fact that it's actually quite difficult to choose a task that allows a student to accurately and objectively represent this true ability. But I, I don't think that there really is any true core unadulterated <coughs> ability. I think performance is variable because ability always has to be applied to a particular activity in a particular situation. And I also think that if, we, if there were such an ability, actually measuring that ability probably wouldn't have that much to do with the kind of education that I'm interested in. Because to me, surely we want to help people to develop more than we want to be able to make authoritative determinations about some abstract concept of unapplied knowledge. So this stormtrooper might be very accomplished at manoeuvring this vacuum cleaner in the relative order of a military base or a Death Star. But what will he do when he is ordered to clean the bedroom of the Emperor's teenage grandson. <laughs> None of his training has prepared him for this. He doesn't know what to do. He knows the kid does not like his stuff being touched. There are untold horrors lurking underneath those bedsheets. Don't even want to start talking about what's in the cupboard. He simply does not have the resources to deal with this complex, dynamic, unpredictable environment. So what he has been prepared for is competence in the absence of context. His sort of decontextualized training assessment has prepared him to do the skill. The technical performance of that skill he is very good at. And we know about that. And actually, there is a place for this. I don't want to say that we should never do this. But what I don't want us to do is to concentrate too much on that aspect to the marginalization of understanding performance and practice in complex spaces. Because actually, here, if he doesn't know how to do that, he's going to have to figure it out. He's going to have to get help, and he has to know how to get help. He has to know how to pull together various resources in order to get this job done. And that sort of knowing has not been allowed inside this kind of assessment regime. So just to bring you back down to earth and to give you a break from metaphors, 
Um, I'll talk you very briefly through a modest piece of research that Clara and I did a couple of years ago. Students on the Masters in Clinical Education program were asked to learn a completely novel motor skill. So these are these students are people who teach doctors and nurses and dentists and vets. And they're often very senior and accomplished and they've perhaps forgotten what it was like to be a novice. So what we wanted to do is put them back in that space where they had to think about how they learned things from scratch. And we asked them to keep a blog of their reflections on how they were doing, to talk to each other about those reflections, and then we got consent from 31 of them to analyze their blog posts to see how they went about it. So the tasks were things like drawing a horse, playing an instrument, doing origami, doing rock climbing, uh, juggling, things like that. So this is not one of our students. None of our, <laughs> none of our students chose um, high wire walking as their skill. Um, this is Nick Wallender, um, who is walking above Baltimore Harbor uh, a little bit before he walked across Niagara Falls. So this is a sort of practice. Um, but it's important to note that he does not have a safety net. So that his, his um, performance involves having no safety net. And I, I'm just borrowing Nick to try and make a point about scaffolding and expertise. So for our students, mastery of a, a skill involved being able to do it without any kind of material or social support, the removal of scaffolding. So, for example, someone said, today I created two more boxes, this is origami, on my first attempt I'm trying to reduce my dependency on the instructions. So, today mastery was being able to not look at the photograph of the horse, not use the YouTube tutorial, not use the instructions, not ask their daughter for help. And mastery is a word that the clinical education students use a lot. It's very popular in medical education. I think it's misused quite a bit, and, and I'll, I'll try and explain why. If we look closer at this picture, at first glance, Nick doesn't seem to have much with him. It seems like he's doing this without much support. But he uses a very particular kind of pole that is good for helping him balance, and that's the kind of pole he's used to, and you could even say he's become reliant on having this kind of pole when he does this. He has quite fancy kind of shoes that are particularly good for this kind of um, skill. He has people who put the rope up for him, check the rope, make sure it's fine, they double check it. Um, he makes sure that he doesn't do this in, in any sort of variable weather condition. So actually there's a whole lot of configuration of this material and social space that he does in order to be able to do this. And I would argue that that doesn't mean he, isn't ma he hasn't mastered this. I would just say that those um, negotiations that he does with all that stuff are part of the mastery of that skill. So part of learning the skill involves using social material resources, and part of performing the skill also involves <laughs> making use of these social material resources. So for my students, even if they were able to draw the horse without looking at the photograph of the horse, then they still had particular choices to make about what paper to use and what pencils to use that actually did have an important impact on the way they were able to draw the material, the physical spaces that they used, the tables, where did they do it, was it a quiet environment. The kinds of balls that you juggle with are important to juggling. 
So basically, there was no skill that didn't involve some sort of material configuration and possibly social configuration, both in the learning of the skill and in the performance to actually make that performance better, easier. Um, this is basically just to try and show you two different views of the situation. So on the view on the left, the, the one that's labeled individual, the driver seems to be in rational control of the vehicle and they really just have to negotiate the traffic to get from A to B. On the right, you have the social material view zoomed out a bit. So now you can see actually the agency of the driver is a lot less than we thought it was in that view because really what they're doing is they're watching and listening and waiting to respond to the dynamic and complex activity that's in evolving around them. They need to be able to adapt into this ecology and they need to integrate into it and perhaps perform subtle configurations on that. It's not just the steering of the car in this view. So I think sometimes in assessment we think about that view on the left and we forget about this view on the right. So part of the skill not only of learning to do the task, but of doing the task, is in the capacity to adapt. As this student said, sometimes tasks call for teamwork and knowing when you need help, along with having the ability to ask someone for it. So if you think about lots of the stuff that you do in the real world, you need to know how to get help, how to get other people and things to help you with your learning and your performance, and it isn't cheating and it doesn't mean you're not good at your job. It's part of being good at your job. The capacity to adapt to complex settings is an important thing that we want to nurture in our students. A couple of papers, I, I think these are being sent around, so I've stuck a couple of papers up here that will talk you in more detail through some of these ideas. The one on the right is basically the premise that students use things and people in their learning and then for some reason when we are assessing them we often make them do it without those things, we restrict their access to these, these resources and then when they graduate they go back to, um, they go to work and they again need to use materials and resources in their learning and isn't that a bit of a strange thing that we do. Um, on the left I'm talking about how often assessment focuses on products or performances Sometimes it takes account of process, such as when you ask a student to submit a reflective account of their learning or what they've done. Sometimes uh, you'll ask a math student to show their working. Sometimes you'll ask an art student to deliver sketches and preliminary drawings as part of the assessment. So you get a bit of an account of process, but what we don't do often is we don't look at the actual situated practices of students. And the argument that Clara and I make here is that Actually, we want to try and excavate some of these practices, <coughs> talk about them, see what everyone is actually doing and how they could be improved. And to do that, we want creative assessments that allow students to find different ways of working, talk about them, that are dialogic and that are open to both students and teachers as much as possible. Um, to talk a bit more about practices, another uh, project that we're doing with Dye Council at the moment um, is well, it's just about finished being written up. We interviewed a set of postgraduate students who are also professionals, um, not just in healthcare and medicine, but also art and architecture and law and informatics. And we wanted to find out something about the relationship between assessment at university and the kinds of unpredictable idiosyncratic learning that you have to do in the workplace. So examples of that kind of learning are 
how does the nurse know how to knock on the consultant's door in a particular way at a particular time to get the right result? Or how does the uh, social worker know or learn how to subtly and professionally exit the home of a particularly needy and lonely client? Or how does the architect make decisions about which complex and expensive piece of software to invest in that will see them through the next five or ten years? All of these difficult things that cannot be taught at university because we can't predict them. So instead we need to instill the capacity to learn those things in the moment. Um, it's actually very difficult to understand how people develop these practices. And I'll try and give you a bit of an example here. Um, there's the subliminal recaffeination, so drink that in. Um, I spoke to my wife. I thought this would be a good example. Just making a cup of coffee. Let's talk through that. Let's see what are the practices involved in making a cup of coffee. So I, I thought I'd try that with her, and I said, can you tell me as precisely as you can all the things you do when you make a cup of coffee. And she said, sure. Um, the first thing I do is I fill the kettle half the way up with water. And I said, ah, no, you don't. Because actually, it's pretty much random how much water she puts in the kettle. It seems to be different every time. But OK, on you go. Um, so she says, then I get two mugs out of the cupboard. And I think that's really sweet, because I think she's talking about making a cup of coffee for her and for me. And I say, oh, how do you choose which mugs? And she says, well, I just get the two closest clean mugs out. And I'm like, ah, no, you don't. And I could keep going, but actually the conversation ended there. <laughs> and sadly, her coffee practice has changed. She, she just puts a quarter water in the kettle now and gets one mug out of the cupboard. This exercise did highlight something that Lucy Suchman talked about in her book, Plans of Situated Actions. We're quite good at giving relatively coherent accounts of activity that we're about to do. And we're quite good at giving coherent accounts of stuff we've already done. But they're imprecise and actually they deviate significantly from the activity that unfolds in the moment. And so I would talk about these accounts of the steps that people supposedly go through as process. And I would talk about the actual activity that unfolds as practice. And I think practice is much harder because she doesn't know what she does when she... According to me. I, I could, could, according to her, be wrong. She doesn't know what she does um, when she makes a cup of coffee. And so something as simple as that is very difficult to get your head around. But actually, trying to learn about these practices that we do allows us to rethink them in ways that are often invisible. So if you wanted to be really good at making coffee, then you could think through all these practices that you do. What brand do you buy? Where do you go to the shops? How do you do it? And eventually, if you kind of worked on all those, you could make a better coffee. But you would also understand something about how you go about configuring all your materials and all of your stuff. <coughs> And that would help you navigate some of these complex spaces like the emperor's grandson's bedroom. But you're not just trying to learn how to operate in one space. Students need to move across spaces. So a, an obvious example is between the workplace and the university. There are others, but on that one, 
Um, there are various <coughs> ways in which we patch together the workplace and the university. So there's accreditation and governance processes. There's forms of assessment that are relevant to the workplace. There's forms of tools and tasks that we get students to do that are relevant. There's placements, etc. And in everywhere where these two spaces come together, there are things that we could think of as seams. And often we try to hide the seams to make everything really smooth so the system just works. It's seamless for students to go between workplace and university. But actually, sometimes it's useful to be able to see and understand these seams in order to rework things and understand things in a different way. So let's take the automobile as an example. Uh, my grandfather could change the engine in his car. My father can change the oil. I can just about change a tire. My sons, when they grow up, may be able to refill wiper fluid. Not sure. And actually, in a lot of ways, this is great. It's great for getting to, from A to B. It's not so great if you want to be able to ask questions. If you want to see how the system works, if you want to rethink everything. Um, and actually, in order to be able to ask questions, we might need to allow our students to see some of these themes and to think about. So examples in assessment might be, let's give students some text from someone's source, and they need to work it into their own text, and then the other students need to try and figure out where it came from and what it is. Or let's force the students to collude with each other on something, but then talk, talk openly about how they did that and how they could do it better in the future. Or let's get them to spend loads of energy trying to uncover what questions are going to be on the test and then openly talk about how they went about uncovering that so that they can learn something about how effectively to find out this kind of information. Because although to some people that will sound a bit nuts, actually those are the types of activities that we have to do in our professional work all the time. So what I'm arguing for is creative ways in which we can think about the ways that we stitch all of these processes together, question them, Etc. And of course, you need institutional backing for that sort of thing. The institution needs to be able to allow teachers to do slightly risky designs and assessment without negative consequences. Um, they need support to actually learn how to design these in appropriate ways and create the right balance of structure and freedom for students. And students need to be able to engage in sort of slightly risky um, activities without fear of failure, or actually not fear of failure, because failure is sort of a positive principle, but fear of negative repercussions of failure. So presumably by now, everyone's fairly convinced that creativity can be a value to education. But I want to talk about how creativity can be a value in helping students have the freedom to actually discover new ways of working that work for them. So creativity <coughs> involves finding, using resources and finding new ways and interesting ways of using them. It involves innovation to solve complex problems. And where there's innovation, there's vulnerability. So creativity involves risk-taking, making mistakes, going down blind alleys, finding workarounds, and subverting things. Um, and so there needs to be some sort of support. And we also wouldn't advocate total freedom in um, giving students license to do whatever they want, because they also need to be able to learn about something that's relevant to their educational goals. And I think the way to do that is, firstly, to help, student, help teachers know how to design appropriate tasks that can allow for creativity, but create sufficient structure so that students aren't just completely um, 
un unmoored, if you like. Um, but they also need to know how to how to sort of responsively and reactively create structure as they go, because as I've said, some of the types of things that I want them to be able to do cannot be predetermined. So you can't pre-structure everything, and as you go, you might need to guide students in particular directions. And so I think the dialogic aspect of this is essential both peers, you know, students talking to students and students talking to teachers as they go, guiding each other towards generative directions, keeping them safe, and encouraging um, creativity and discovery. <coughs> so this is the way I see us bridging these spaces. I think we do need some of this kind of breaking down a task into its mechanical sections and and testing it and, and getting feedback, but then I think we, we don't want to focus so much on that that we forget about this other messy, dynamic, collaborative material and social space in which students will need to operate. So here we are, round back safely at the start, but to, just to, to bring this back to the, the notions of scaling up, I think as we scale, we always scale too much. We really want to think about the view of the student and what they need to do as we go, so that we create enough space for developing the kinds of trusting relationships between student and student and student and student and teacher that um, they need in order to really try out things, find out from each other what other people are doing, see what's good and bad about that, talk it through in a sort of open space. And we need to do that very cautiously when we're growing so that these relationships are not damaged by a kind of replication of processes and ultimately of students. <coughs>